morning, we're going to be in uh, Titus chapter 3. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to get there. Titus chapter 3. So if you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, you'll find that Titus is kind of turning the corner a little bit. Stephen, can you give me a little bit in my number one slider? But as you're turning there, what you're going to find is that I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 24 this morning. Because in 2 Kings chapter 24, essentially what's happened is uh, the nation of Israel is in this spot where they have kind of gotten to the point where they've rejected God's commands for so long that God is actually going to take them out of their land and he's going to use an ungodly nation. Many of you have probably heard of it. Babylon. He's going to use ungodly people to do his will, which is godly and perfect. But he's going to essentially discipline those that he loves. He's going to take the nation of Israel. He's going to remove them from Jerusalem. He's going to remove them from the land of Israel. And as he does that, he's going to use this ungodly nation. And they are going to do what ungodly nations do. They're going to torture them. They're going to take advantage of them. They're going to make them their slaves and their servants. And we're going to talk about the story of Daniel today because what's interesting is in this passage in 2 Kings chapter 24, he says, um, he says that Nebuchadnezzar led their king, who was Jehoiachin, away as a captive to Babylon, along with the queen mother, his wives and officials, and all of Jerusalem's elite. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to take all these men and women, the, the best of the best, and he's going to take them out of their land, and he's going to leave kind of the weaklings there to take away their national identity. And he's also going to exploit their troops. It says he also exiled 7,000 of their best troops and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans, all of whom were strong and fit for war. And then the king of Babylon installed Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, as the next king, and he changed Mataniah's name to Zedekiah. So why am I reading this? What does that have to do with, Zedek or with Titus? Well, what it has to do with Titus is today's passage, Titus is going to be ex exhorted by Paul to essentially teach those who are in his churches there in the island of Crete to live as good citizens. And this passage was in our Bible study together reading this morning. And in this passage, we find out this, these these people that were exiled and taken to Babylon, one of those people was actually a young man by the name of Daniel. We studied Daniel a few months ago. We all marvel, and if you have a Bible storybook for your children, we all read the stories about how amazing Daniel was as a young man of God. He lived in exile. He lived out of the land that God promised his people. He was taken away. His family was killed in front of him. Okay, He was... Um, taken to a different land and told to basically learn about astrology and all these foreign gods and idols and their religion, which was vast. It essentially taught about all their pagan deities and their, their folklore. He was trained their language. He was young man, about 16. Uh, many believe he was anywhere from 13 to 18. And you know what else? They, they took away his family. They took away his cultural identity. And guess what? They also took away his ability to have children. They castrated him and made him a eunuch. So, as a young man, 13 to 18, 
what would be your response if you were taken to a land and all this happened to you? Would you live like Daniel, or would you throw in an ever-loving fit and start doing all you could to stir up trouble in the land that God took you to? I don't know about you, but I probably would not be like Daniel. I would be very angry. I would kill as many people as I could, and then I'd probably end up killing myself. Now, this is taking Christ out of the picture. This is just all fleshly responses to circumstances. So, what God's going to say in today's passage from Paul to Titus is, that should not be your response as a Christian. Your response to be good citizens in this land that God's called you to. And I love this because how many of you know the passage in Jeremiah 29, verse 11? Where I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11. This is one that, that you see in most Christian homes. You'll see it in, book, in Christian bookstores. But what I want to give you is the context of that verse is just what I read to you. They've been taken out of their nation. They've been taken into a land. And what we find out is in Jeremiah 29, verse 5 and 6, this is what God told the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, um, in verse 4 though, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, remembering they were carried away for the rebellion and the rejection of God's law, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was God's plan. He took them there. He said, look, verse 5, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not be diminished. Don't lose your cultural identity. Don't let them change you. Keep living as if God is in control. And then he says, Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for the city, for in its peace you will have peace. So, Christians, brothers, and sisters, in Titus, Paul's saying the same thing. You, and he's writing to these Cretans, which is a cultural byword in their day. Even their own people said all Cretans are liars, and they hate, and they murder. But what he's saying is you are not to be like that if you are in Christ. So in chapter 3 of Titus, he says this. After he said, basically, Titus, I've left you there to set in place the things that are not. I want you to build up and I want you to set in place leaders in the churches there. And then in chapter 2, he gives them qualities that they ought to exhibit and live out as individuals in the church. He tells older men and tells younger women and younger men and 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 all of the, the people that you could come up with he gives them instructions on how to interact with one another that's within the church but then he goes on in chapter three to talk about how they ought to be as citizens in the nation that they live in they are in the cretan nation they are surrounded by pagans and people that that reject true doctrine from jesus as my daughter and I were driving here this morning, we were driving down Main Street. My daughter, all she's ever known is church. We got pregnant, and, and we moved down here, and we planted the church. And when she was born, she was going to church because we were already pastoring. We had started the church. And so I, it, a funny thought came to me this morning as we were driving down Main Street. I said, 
Lucy, have you, did you know that most people don't know Jesus and don't go to church on Sunday morning? They just stay at home? She goes, really? Why? And I said, I said, well, I said, why do you think? And this is my four-year-old who will be five on tomorrow. She said to me, well, because not everybody knows Jesus, maybe. And I said, that's right. They don't know Jesus. And so they're, why would they go to church? That makes no sense. And so he says to remind them. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them, this is the believers in, in Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, if you've got ideal circumstances, this is no big deal. As long as everybody in your life you agree with and you're surrounded by people that have the same ideologies and religion as you, no big deal. But put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Daniel's surrounded by people that hate his God. And when Daniel does good for them, they curse him because he gets more prominence. He gets a higher position than them. And then actually they seek out ways to try and kill him. At one point, he goes to his prayer closet three times a day and he opens his windows and he prays towards Jerusalem. And so they go, hey, we could get rid of Daniel. We'll come up with a law and we'll get the king to stamp his approval on it that if anyone in their nation prays to anybody but Jesus, or excuse me, no, that's, that's see, I'm, I'm already, I can't do it. If prays to anyone except Nebuchadnezzar, was it Nebuchadnezzar by that time? I think it might have been a different king. I'm forgetting that detail. But the king said, if anybody prays to anybody but me, then they will be put in the lion's den. And Daniel said, okay, but I'd rather obey God than man, and so God can protect me if I obey him. So he prayed, opening his windows like he always did. He didn't start then just to spite them. He had always been doing it. He opened his windows and he prayed to God towards Jerusalem. And when he did that, he got punishment. He got thrown in the lion's den. But he obeyed God rather than men. And so he says to them, in Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. So be subject, that phrase there means to put yourself under those who are in authority over you. Rank yourselves behind the man that God has placed in control. Now, this is hard for us, right? Because nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm an American, right? But are you an American first or are you a Christian first? Because what Christ taught was submission to authority. When they came and asked him, hey, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They were asking because on the coins was a picture of Caesar, and to them that was an image that was an idol. It was something that represented someone who was worshipped. So should we bow the knee is what they're asking to Caesar. And what he said to them was, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. It's got his face on it. Give it to him. It's his. You owe it to him. He's the ruler. He's an authority. Now, did that mean that Jesus was saying you need to worship him? No. He says, put yourself under his control because ultimately God the Father has given him that control. Other places in Scripture talk about those who are in leaders over us, those who are authorities over us, God has placed them there. It actually says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was placed there, an ungodly man, by God himself. 
And so if we truly believe that God's in control of all things, if he places somebody ungodly over us, have we ever considered the fact that it might be so that we can, by our conduct and by the way that we put ourselves under their authority, uh, perhaps it's so that they can see Christ in us, so they can see that we're willing to be in subjection. Remember the time where Jesus was actually, he was on trial for claiming that he was going, he's the king. And it was before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that just with a word, you can be gone? I can kill you by my own signature? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me except if it was given to you by my Father who's in heaven. Jesus even had to be in subjection to those who were put over him. And because of, he didn't just say, hey, Pilate's going to kill me. I'm out. I'm going to go do my own thing. He said, your will be done, Father. And so we as Christians are to be like Christ in subjection to the authority that God's placed over us. And what I have for you there is, number one, be subject or put yourself under, rank yourselves behind the one God's put in control. And then I have for you, obey them under God's arrangement. God has arranged who your boss is. God has arranged who your parents are. God has arranged who's in authority over you in some way or another. God has arranged who the president is, whether it's Barack Obama or whether it's Donald Trump. No matter who you agree with or disagree with, we get to have a say in our culture, but ultimately God places them there, whether we can wrap our minds around that or not, right? And so in Romans chapter 13, Paul has already spent some time writing about this, so rather than me coming up and reinventing the wheel, we're going to read that. Romans 13, verse 1. Took my tabs out so I can give you a few more seconds to turn so I'm not cheating and rushing ahead of you. Romans chapter 13, Paul wrote to the Romans who were under Caesar at the time, and this is Caesar Nero, who actually blamed the Christians for burning down most of Rome at the time. So this is an ungodly man. He would actually uh, celebrate and kind of go crazy, and he would burn Christians at the stake, and then he would ride his chariot in the middle of the night naked around them while they burned. So keep that in mind when we read this passage. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he, get this, is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So, essentially teaching and expounding upon what Jesus said, which was, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's.
but also pointing to the faith point. It takes faith to put ourselves under whoever's in control of writing the laws. And, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I can see as I look and I look at politics, and I don't spend a ton of time doing it, but I do pay attention. I'm not ob- oblivious to the fact that we have ungodly people in authority. But it's always been the case. And no matter what anybody says, no matter who you're voting for at the presidential election time, or the senator, or the state representative, or all the way down to the county, or the city levels, or even in your own workplace, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils, because Jesus isn't running for office in any of those places. So he says, subject yourself, put yourself under the authority that God has placed. Now, there's a catch to that, right? Because what if they ask me to do something that's ungodly? Well, in Daniel, we have an example of that. Daniel, in chapter 2, uh, does not subject himself. Uh, he, he subjects himself. He's a good servant. And because of that, he ends up saving all of the guys that are authorities and rulers and, and those who are helping out King Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel chapter 3, he asks, uh, God asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow the knee to this big, huge golden statue that he's made. And because they don't, it makes this big uproar. Hey, Those Hebrew boys over there are not bowing the knee like you told us all to. And there's thousands of people surrounding this big, huge golden statue. And they blow all these trumpets, they sound all these instruments, and literally everybody, the most prominent people of society, are hitting the dirt and saying, we worship you. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose actual names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they do not bow the knee. Because though they are in subjection underneath the authority of this man, when he asks them to disobey God, they do not subject themselves. They stop. And he actually gets so furious that he heats the furnace that he had warned them, if you don't bow the knee, I will throw you in there and you will die. And they said, we will, <laughs> you don't have to tell us about this. We understand the implications. We understand that you're going to put us to death, but here's the deal. We trust that if we obey God rather than you and we get thrown in the furnace, that God is able to deliver us from the furnace. But the faith note is when they say, but even if he doesn't, guess what? We're still not going to bow the knee. I don't believe they were throwing their fists up and going and, and rioting to say this. I believe that they said it in subjection. I believe they said it respectfully like you would speak to your boss about, hey, I'd really like to have this weekend off. (laughs) And when your boss says, no, how do you handle that? I believe that when they said, hey, we're not going to bow the knee to this statue, we only trust and we bow the knee to God, I believe they said it respectfully. Now, you can take that or leave it, because that's just a devotional thought. But as a result of that, they get thrown in the furnace, right? The ones who are in subjection to Nebuchadnezzar, the ones that have sworn their allegiance to him, the soldiers that he used to throw those men into the furnace, they perished when they threw those three men in there. They got so close to the furnace to throw them in that they died, but then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he says, I thought we threw three men in there, but there's four, and if God were to have a son, he looks like that guy. And what we find out is that he honored their obedience, he delivered them, 
and he brought them out. And what we find in later chapters is that because of their submission to authority, actual authority, they won Nebuchadnezzar. He became a born-again believer. He believed by faith that their God was greater than any other God. And anybody that said anything bad about him, he was going to throw down on him. And so here again, we see this subjection, yet without sin. And so in verse 3, he continues in Titus chapter 3, and he says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So let's get the context here because what he says is, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. He says all of these things. He says to do all of these things and live like this, because we ourselves were also once foolish. So he's saying, if there's people in your life that are not in subjection to God, the way that you behave yourself towards them should be an honorable way because we used to be foolish like them. Maybe your boss absolutely drives you nuts and he's not a good man and you don't respect him or her because of their conduct. Well, Put yourself in subjection under them anyway, because guess what? You used to be foolish like them. You used to be foolish. He says you used to be uh, disobedient. You used to be deceived and, and serve your own lusts and pleasures and live in malice and envy. You weren't that great to start with either. But who else is going to be a witness to them except for the people that work for them? Now, I say this having a boss myself that doesn't know the Lord. And there are days where I find him to be very respectful. And I love working for him. And I, and I want to do the best so that he can look good because of the way that I work. Knowing I won't get any credit. But there's other days where stuff happens and I'm like, Psh, I don't want to work hard for you. I don't even respect you. I can't take it. But what this passage says is do it anyway. You're not your own. You're, you're the Lord's. And so he says, um, you were once of the same kind, therefore be a witness to him. Verse 4 says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, now we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So he says, remind them where they came from. Remind them to be in subjection because of whose they now are and because all that God has already done. Don't be like the rest of the world. <coughs> excuse me. We once were, he says, excuse me. <coughs> he says, we once were. So in verse 3, I, I wanted to take just a minute and say, as you read verse 3, where it says, we once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, also uh, serving our lusts and our pleasures, our own desires, and living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, do these describe what you were, or do they describe what you are right now, as of today? 
Paul's describing what Christians used to be before Christ. The reality is, is that many uh, people come to know Jesus at camp or they have some sort of experience or someone shares the gospel with them. They, they feel sorrowful over their sin and sorrowful over the fact that they got caught. And so they make a profession of faith. But unfortunately, because of that, they go, okay, now I'm good and I'm going to go about my life. But the reality is there should be fruit that comes from your relationship with the Lord that proves that your life has actually been changed. If you become a new creation in Christ, these things should describe what you used to be, not what you are currently. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have hiccups. Because uh, if anybody were to uh, give my wife a survey to fill out, she'd go, wow, that describes you sometimes. But the idea is, does this describe your continual state of conduct? Does this continue, describe your continual uh, the way that you carry yourself, the way you interact with other people? Are you someone who is known to be uh, deceived and foolish and uh, disobedient to the Word of God? Or are you someone who has um, surrendered your life and, and though you have hiccups, that you're, you're having a victorious lifestyle? He says, uh, he says, this is what you used to be. But when the kindness and the love of God was revealed, he says, uh, it wasn't revealed to you because you deserved it. It was actually according to mercy. So when God saved you, he's reminding them, this is, this is what happened to you if you're in Christ. God revealed himself to you. It wasn't anything that you could do. There is no one who seeks God, no, not one. But you, the undeserved mercy is really just God's compassion in action. When God pointed out to you that you were a sinner, you didn't cry out and say, Lord, I want justice for myself. I deserve punishment. What we cry out for for ourselves is actually mercy. We throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. You've heard that phrase before. We were at the mercy of God. If God didn't show us compassion, we did, if you're honest with yourself, deserve judgment, punishment. The law of God does not change, and we deserve the punishment that it prescribes for those who rejected his commands and sinned in the ways that we did. But we have mercy. And according to mercy, he did these things. He saved us. He washed us. He renewed us by giving us his Holy Spirit and making us his own heirs. We're heirs according to the promise, all because of what Jesus has done not of anything that we could earn or deserve. So, <laughs> I love my grammar there. Has you asked him to do this for you? Have you asked him to do this for you? Have you asked him to save you? Have you cried out for his mercy? Have you asked him to wash you? Has he renewed you? Can you see the results of his daily renewing who you once were and now who you are? Are you being restored by his grace being poured into your life? Can other people that are close to you and know you well, do they go, you're different? Or are you the same that you've always been? And I would submit to you, if you're the same you've always been, you've not experienced what God does in a human life. You've not. You're only fooling yourself, no one else is. But if you have, Guess what? You're no longer described by verse 3. You're not foolish. You're not disobedient. 
And it's all because God is continuing to renew your mind and change you from the inside out. And I love this because he says there in verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Constantly make this, this fact in front of the people that are claiming Christ because this is a reality. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. If you believe in God and you profess Him to be your Savior, you should be careful to do your part and maintain good works. Do works save us? No, if you read the few verses right before that, works can't do anything for us. We can't dig ourselves out of this hole. It's surrounded by sand, and if you've ever been buried in sand, if you try to dig a hole in sand, all you do is you continually bury yourself deeper. That's what it is like to save yourself. But he says, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable. They're profitable. And so, Next verse. This was his instruction. He said, remind them that they've been washed. Remind them that they're different. Remind them to put themselves in subjection to the authority that's over them. And he said, those who have been washed by God, those who have been made new, should maintain good works. But, verse 9, he's speaking to the church, but he's also speaking to Titus. He says, look at this. Avoid foolish arguments, genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and they are useless he just told us what is profitable to men that they be careful to maintain good works that they be ready for good works that they continue in them that they ask lord what do you want me to do with my life and that they maintain and continue in what he's given them to do but he says here's what normally happens in churches rather than maintaining good works this is what starts to happen corruption, foolish arguments about doctrine. Ask anybody that's left church. Now, many times it's because they have decided they're not going to obey simple things anymore. Maybe they got too convicted and they're like, I'm, I'm out. This is too much for me. But sometimes it's because the people that they were hanging out with at church, if you wanted to describe them, they were those who had foolish arguments. They were all worried about who, what family they were from. Or they had contentions and arguments and strivings about the law or the word of God. And those things are unprofitable. They're useless. They don't win anybody to Christ. All the time, churches split over an argument over some sort of doctrine that, if you read Scripture, doesn't really justify their case. You know, the doctrine of salvation. Am I saved by grace through faith or do my works do it? Well, Scripture's pretty clear, but then there's the... You know, uh, am I, what, do I believe in once saved, always saved? You ever heard that argument? There's, there's mountains of books about it. My Bible teaches that you are saved. Once God saved you, you are always saved. But it also teaches if you continue in the faith. So I've got, I've got steps to make, but God's completely in control. And people will argue and split and make new churches and rename them and, and have bitterness towards one another and, and in all of that argument, what happens is that Christ becomes a secondary issue and my argument or my doctrine or my hobby horse or my soapbox becomes number one and they don't win anybody to Christ because they're like, look, I've already got a family and none of us get along very well and we all argue about things. What makes the body of Christ any different? I don't need any more drama. 
And so they're pushed away from Christ because of this divisiveness that happens. So he says, look at this. He says, Titus, avoid foolish arguments. Avoid genealogies or pedigrees. Avoid contentions. And this is just striving or fighting, especially those concerning religious laws. All the time, the Pharisees were showing up and talking to Jesus, and they'd say, why don't you, I talked about it last week, why don't your, why don't your disciples wash their hands like we do? Uh, mainly because nobody, yeah, why? It, you came up with that on your own because it's not profitable. You know, why don't you sing hymns? Why doesn't your church uh, pass the plate? You know, whatever your thing is, your tradition that you're used to, and most of the time, those arguments, the pe- reason people leave churches has nothing to do with that deal. It's just that he goes on to say here, he says, reject anyone who's divisive after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Those that argue about these disputable things, these open-handed deals, they argue about them many times because they don't want anybody to talk to them about how they're really doing spiritually. They don't want to be outed. And so they make arguments about things that they really don't care about. They stir up strife and contention within the body of Christ. And no one actually ends up having a transformed life because the stuff that doesn't matter becomes the main issue. Are we going to have service at 10 or at 9? Are we going to do a Saturday night? Are we going to do, uh, do hymns? Are we going to do, you know, you guys can all think of something that churches have split over, things that have made you go, I don't even want to go to church anymore. And, and, and it becomes not about Christ anymore. He says, take someone who is divisive in your church, talk to them, approach them according to Matthew 18, which Jesus said, if you got somebody that's causing problems, somebody that's sinning in the church, approach them one-on-one and talk to them about it. If they repent, you've gained your brother. And if they reject your cause, then take someone else with that, you to talk to them. And if they reject you, then, then, then escalate it. Talk to the elders and have them approach that person. And, and he goes on, but the point is, is that many times if, if we start making things that don't matter the main issue, we stop letting God change us. And so he says, after two times, put them out of the church so that they will know that really the way that they're living may as well, they may as well be out of the church. Um, Divisive individuals, admonish them. And the idea of admonishment is not to cripple them or to take them away from the church, but it's actually teaching in order to warn them. You know, we love our children, and so we, we teach them strongly sometimes, stay in the fence, because if you go out in the yard, you're going to get killed. You know? Uh, it, and the reality is, is that we treat sin as if it's not as important as that, but when you continue in sin, it means death in your life. It brings forth death. It brings conception. And, and so sin will always lead to death. But he says, put them out of fellowship with the church, and if they refuse to hear and repent. Now, if they repent, then, uh, then you've gained them. So a couple of final things. He says, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. 
and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So in the next slide, this is basically just a to-do list that Paul's giving Titus on some practical things. But I want to point out what verse um, 13 and 14 says. It says, Send Zenos and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. That they may lack nothing, that note is implied that send them on their journey, make sure that they have all they need to go. So provide for them practically so they can go on this journey. And he says, let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. He says, see a need, meet a need. If there are people within the church that have needs, if we will be quick to treat them like we would want to be treated if we were in their situation, we get the opportunity to maintain good works. And then at the same time, he says, when there's an urgent need, be quick to supply for that need so that you will not be unfruitful. Then he continues and he ends the letter by saying, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So one more slide and then we'll close. So what can we take away from today's message? My main point there is to be good citizens. Proper subjection to authority actually reveals Jesus. And I referred to that when I talked about Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Our heavenly citizenship does not absolve us from our responsibilities as citizens on earth. So be good citizens as you are in the land that God has placed you in. Number two, the only evidence that the unsaved world, or I would say unsaved individuals, have that we belong to God is our godly lives. God is merciful. God comes to us. God meets needs. And uh, God, Jesus, put himself under subjection. <coughs> In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus said that. He says, I am the light of the world. And I'm going to turn there real quick to make sure I'm not misquoting. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But something else I put up there for you in the pictures, I put Jesus is the light of the world, and then to the right it says, you are the light of the world. Now, no doubt, we know that Jesus is the light of the world, but how many of us live as if Jesus has made us to be his continual light in the world? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke to the crowd there, and he said, uh, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill uh, does not put a basket over it. It cannot be hidden. He says, you are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, again, being able to subject to authority, uh, at the same time fearing God the way that we do it, actually is like taking the light that God has placed in us and putting it up on a pole so that all can see. Um, your pedestal for the way that you live for Jesus 
Many times it's going to be the way that you humble yourself before your boss, before your teachers, or before whoever's in authority over you. And we are all under someone's authority, whether we like to or not. You know, if you're a manager, many times you're a manager under someone else who's a manager. They manage you, you know. And so uh, what I want to point out to you is that Jesus's subjection to authority actually provided for our salvation. And so let me ask you, are you willing to subject yourself to the authority God's placed over you? And do you realize that whether or not you do it right could mean someone else's salvation or not? So Father, we thank you for the book of Titus.